Well, we come to the last in this series of, of five addresses on what are called sometimes the doctrines of grace and we come to the doctrine which is most often known as the final perseverance of the saints. The doctrine sometimes called the saints' eternal security. The point about the first being better is that it suggests that we are not only secure as to the end but we shall persevere in the way to that end but that's something I can refer to later Romans chapter 8 verse 30 and those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified now we've entered into some of the deep things of God recently we've seen that we've been known from eternity loved from eternity and appointed for eternity to share the eternal glory of God and the outcome in time of this eternal decision has already begun in our personal calling God's effective and effectual call in our lives and in our justification which is a word that has gone out from heaven that will never be reversed or recalled that we are justified in Christ so that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus nor ever shall be but we feel ourselves often so threatened so assaulted so fragile and so vulnerable in the world that we fear for tomorrow and we say how can we be sure that we are safe and shall continue to be safe John Wesley used to believe that a man could be sure that he was saved today but that was as far as assurance went he couldn't be assured that he would be saved next week or next month except for two or three exceptions of particularly holy people who'd entered into a profound experience of the Holy Spirit that cuts away the ground so much from the believers security and joy and confidence in God and is more reminiscent of the Roman Catholic doctrine than the old Protestant doctrine for the Catholics too denied assurance um, in any sense like that to their people but we shall see that the, the doctrine and once again I'm wondering whether in fact I've not brought the material I was going to bring to take you through a little quick course of church history on these doctrines but the doctrine that I'm going to present to you is in fact the the doctrine that has been defended over and over again by the, the great Protestant evangelical teachers of the churches throughout the centuries. Now the whole of Romans 8 is really an answer to that question, how can we be sure that we shall be safe? Which begins with no condemnation and ends with nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Even after he's enumerated all the things that might be thought to separate us from Christ Jesus among men and angels in the present and the future and he says nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus that having given us his son he will now give us all things freely with him including all the means of perseverance and the thing that Christ has bought by his precious blood which is our eternal glory so this doctrine of the believers final perseverance to certain glorification is something that is rooted from the start in Scripture for us this morning. Now let's look more closely first at the statement of the doctrine in Scripture. And look at it first of all in terms of promise. 
and yet not merely a promise of words we are told in the Bible that we have eternal life and that we have eternal life now in John chapter 3 in verse um, 36 John 5:24, John 6:54, we have this message in John 3:36, for instance we read whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and in all the others eternal life is said to be not merely a promised possession but a presently held possession uh, a possession of today as well as tomorrow um, I was reading uh, in a book of, again of Spurgeon's sermons to bring him into this last lecture in his own incomparable way um, these words if the life be lost the man is dead how then did he have everlasting life? It is clear that he had a life which lasted only for a while. He certainly had not everlasting life, for if he had, he must live everlastingly. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. John 3.36 The saints in heaven have eternal life, and no one expects them to perish. Their life is eternal, but eternal life is eternal life whether the person possessing it dwells on earth or in heaven. It says not temporary life, as he points out later, but eternal life and everlasting life. And we must take it as it is given. And we have eternal life now. And that is something that defeats all arguments, all buts and ifs and doubts and fears what we have can never pass away and we have the spirit as a guarantee and even as a part payment of the glory which is yet to be revealed in 2 Corinthians 1 and 22 and Ephesians 1 13 and you, you of all people don't need me to go into this and in other texts the baptism in the Holy Spirit is often connected with the Spirit giving us a down payment of glory. That's really what it is. It is a touch of the glory that is to be. Not a touch of the glory that may be, but a touch of the glory that is to be for us. It is a down payment of what we have been given. It is a share of what is ours as well as what is God's. That's the point. You are not just getting a taste of someone else's destiny, in God, you're getting a taste of your destiny in God. It is a down payment in that sense. A down payment of what has been guaranteed to you, given to you, bought for you, ordained for you, set apart in heaven for you. It's that sort of experience. The Spirit's work as a guarantee and a part payment. And it's in view of these things, which are not bare promises in the form of words but realities which we now possess it's in the light of this that we are encouraged to say yes I to the end shall endure as sure as the promise is given more happy but not more secure the glorified spirits in heaven they are more happy than we are that's obvious but they're not more secure than we are And it is given not only in scripture in terms of promise, but in terms of power too. You remember in that great chapter of John chapter 10, the shepherd and the sheep chapter, um, an altogether marvelous discourse of our Lord from the very beginning. 
The Old Testament saints said, The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I am your shepherd. The Old Testament saints said, Yahweh is our shepherd. Jesus says, not only I am a shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. And the point of this I am, among his great I ams, is that he is clearly putting himself on the same level as Jehovah of Psalm 23. Because he's not simply saying I'm an under-shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. The quality of his shepherdly office and function is on a level with the psalmist's God. For he is the psalmist's God, Jehovah Jesus. And he underwrites the believer's security in his own signature and in his Father's name also. When he says in, in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Not I shall give it. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so we are held in one grip. And it is the grip of Father and Son and Holy Spirit also, of course. So that there is a Trinitarian guarantee to our salvation, as we will see. But it's there in terms of power. We hold them in our hand. And I and the Father are one. My grip is his grip and his grip is my grip. And you are held in that grip, in the crook of his fingers, in the palm of his hand. My name from the palms of his hand, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains, in marks of indelible grace. The fingers are still crooked around us. The grip is as strong in heaven as it ever was on earth. Do you know, I have in my study a beautiful illustration of this. Opposite to my desk and on my bookshelves, there are just two or three quotations and one picture. And the picture is a piece of pottery sculpture. And the sculpture in pottery is that of two hands which are put together side by side, slightly cupped, forming a sort, of, um, a sort of a cave, if you like. And in the middle of the cave, formed by the two hands, there is this, this figure, the figure perhaps of a, of, of a young child, a young girl. But the interesting, th I, 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 and the title, of the, um, the title of the piece is called Sheltered, because the figure is sheltered in the cup of the hands. But the interesting thing to me, theologically, is that the, the child figure is united in the clay of the hands. So that she's not only sheltered, but she's part of the whole thing. She's united to the hands that hold her. Now that is, to me, a sublime exhibition of the way we are held in the hands of God. Somebody once said about this text, well, I know it says no one can pluck them out of my hands, but it doesn't say you can't fall from his fingers. To which someone replied, nonsense, I am one of his fingers. <laughs> you see, you are sheltered, but not merely sheltered in terms of power and, um, and temporary position, but in terms of union and, and, and irreversible relation. 
My Father who has given to them is greater than all. I give them eternal life. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. The double grip of John 10. So that the statement in Scripture is there in terms of promise, in terms of power, and of course in terms of providential care. God takes care of his babies. We've already seen that he has no unwanted babies. He has no accidents in his family. Every new birth is a planned thing. It is not unexpected to God. And just as people look after planned babies, so God looks after his planned babies, which cost him dear in the birth of them. And so Paul can write, um, can, can write to the, the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse... Um, Verse 6 I thank my God in every, every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus that care that he takes over his babies is expressed in in 1 Peter also chapter 1 and verses 3 to 5 where we read praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time now there are several things there aren't there he says first of all he has given us new birth there's his initiative into a living hope well you know as elementary that hope in the New Testament isn't the same as hope on the street hope on the street is a synonym for uncertainty I hope it will be nice tomorrow Hope in the New Testament is a synonym for confident expectation and a patient waiting for a certain end. That's what it means theologically in the New Testament. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade kept in heaven for you. Now the idea that it can never perish, spoil or fade is not a self-contained idea because it wouldn't be any comfort to us to know that it couldn't fade if we have no part in it. But the idea is that it can never perish, spoil or fade for us. who are. It is kept in heaven for you, he said. And then he goes on to say, and you are kept on earth for it. That's the other side of it. It's kept in heaven for you, you're kept on earth for it who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that is a great double promise. It's kept for us and we are kept for it. So you see then why I read um, Romans 8.39 and why I've already referred to it uh, earlier in another address uh, in terms of the flow, the, the golden chain through predestination, calling and justification, right up to glorification. Crossing the gap, as it were. 
because God has guaranteed that that he bridges the gap between justification and glorification with his faithfulness and power and provision and security. So this is the statement of the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints in scripture. But now let me come with the denial, to the denial of the doctrine. I've tended to speak fairly positively about most things, but um, here I'll try to uncover a little of this truth um, by replying to objections at various times. Now the denial of this doctrine is inconsistent, obviously, with the doctrine of election. In Romans 8 he starts with the doctrine of election and predestination in order to end with glorification. Election is intrinsically unchangeable. It's not provisional. It's not conditional. We saw in the first le lecture that if it had been conditional, it would mean nothing because we would not keep its conditions. It has to be unconditional to be saving and to be effective in the heart of fallen man. Election is unchangeable even in terms of the, the life of God's people. In Romans 11, 28 and 29, we read, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, Israel, are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. In other words, he's saying it was ordained that the Messiah should be rejected, should be crucified, even when it was their fault. There was an ordination in it. Now, it went we go on to read in the book of Acts that even after when the, the, the offer of the gospel was given to them they continued their objection I always understand this that the Jews who crucified Jesus Christ are not damned simply because they crucified Jesus they are damned because they did not repent and believe the offer of the crucified one in his glorification when Peter preached in Jerusalem, Caiaphas could have come, Pilate could have come, they all could have come and found in that crucifixion, which was their greatest crime, their great salvation. Because they represented us, we are as guilty as they are. So they are not condemned for crucifying Jesus, but for rejecting the offer that his crucifixion has entitled him to give. Life for the world and for sinners now he goes on to say that he go, the Bible goes on to show in Acts that they continue their opposition rejecting Peter's offers of grace and salvation and eventually driving the Christians you remember in Acts 8 after the death of Stephen driving them out and where did they drive them out to eventually out into the Gentile world and when they went out into the Gentile world what did they do they carried the gospel with them that was all in the foreordination of God who, has a type, who is entitled to mold this, this debased fallen plastic material this clay that Roman 9 <coughs> talks about and to make of it what he wills so that even the, the hardness and viciousness of men will turn to his account so he says as far as the gospel is concerned they are enemies on your account so that the Gentile world might hear and receive but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And he goes on to say that God hasn't finished with Israel. He's going to do a great work in the last days. 
he's going to do a great work through all nations, of course, and right through the, through the world. Nations are going to be born in a day, and perhaps not just one of them either. But the gospel is going to sound to the Jewish people. They're going to be saved, of course, on the same basis as we are saved, justified by faith in hearing the same gospel. And we must never, ever lose hold of that, or we fall into complete error. Um, and the same is true about uh, ideas that they're going to be saved by seeing Christ coming on the clouds. I haven't got time to talk about the second coming, but the second coming isn't a converting ordinance. <laughs> the word of the second coming is let him that is filthy still be filthy. It is the preaching of the gospel that is the hope of the world and the hope of Israel, which is why we must not cease to pray for missions to Israel and to the other nations also. So he says, because of God's promise to the patriarchs, they are loved. Loved in respect of his future plans for the nation. He's not talking about individual Israelites, of course, but people then and there. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Election is intrinsically unchangeable. And that's why he goes on to say in, uh, uh, in Hebrews um, 6, verses 17 and 18, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said, and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Election is intrinsically unchangeable. And then election is to an end, and not only to a means to an end. Have you noticed in Romans 8 one thing that I haven't yet pointed out, and in nearly all these lectures I've brought out different features of um, the doctrines of grace in those very, chapter, those very verses 28 to, to 32. Have you noticed the aorists that are in the Greek text? very interesting. The aorist tense is very important in the Greek and in Biblical Greek. It isn't simply that um, the aorist points to something past. It is um, what the scholars call um, a punctilia text. It talks about something decisively gathered up into a point. Now, in the indicative mood, it always refers to something in the past. It's the aorist of instantaneous past action. But the point is that the thing is gathered up. It is, it is seen as a, a, as a completed, achieved thing. And it's interesting that he uses aorists time and time again here. And those whom he predestined, aorist, he also called aorist. Those whom he called aorist, he also justified aorist. Those whom he justified aorist, he also glorified aorist. He keeps using that tense to show the certainty of it. Uh, and the completeness of it in the mind and purpose of God and in the fulfillment of his plan. So that election is to an end and not only a means to an end. He doesn't only elect that we have a new chance, a new start, that we live a new life and see what we make of it, but he's ordained the end, which is glory. And further, against the denial of the doctrine, election involves a sacred donation from <laughs> the Father to the Son. I've already spoken about this at large in the, the address on predestination in John 6, 37 to 40 and John 17, verses 6 and 12. 
and Hebrews 2, 13, second part. Again and again, like a refrain in the mind of Jesus and in his, his ministry to us there, you have these words, those whom you have given me, those whom you have given me, those whom you have given me. And he is referring to that sacred donation in the covenant of redemption, which took place in eternity in the Holy Trinity. And therefore, election involves not only the end, but the means to the end. Election involves the means of persevering, as well as the end of those that do persevere. Election involves the means of persevering, as well as the end of those who do persevere. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Second Peter 1, 3, here it is. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now isn't this marvellous because this is regenerate comfort for regenerate people, do you see? He says his divine power has given us everything we need. The unregenerate would think, oh yes, well what I need is, um, is this, that, the other, and then after I die, uh, safe, safe and sound. But the everything we need includes here the sort of things only the regenerate want and appreciate. Life and godliness. And he says that it comes to us through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Then he says through these he's given us his very great and precious promises. Well, we all know what they are. But he adds, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now the unregenerate man will only want promises for promises sake or for the sake of the convenient end that they give. But the regenerate man will use the promises to stir up his heart in gratitude and to live a life on the rebound of God's grace, a life in re re response to God's grace. The keynote of sanctification is gratitude. Not suspense, not anxiety, not faint ambition, but gratitude. Gratitude is the heart, the keynote of sanctification and of the true doctrine of sanctification. It is a response to a guaranteed gift. And the unregenerate never understand this. Can I bring my friend Mr. Spurgeon in again? You'll be glad after those very difficult quotes earlier from Dabney and Shedd uh, and Hodge to have Mr. Spurgeon speak. Here he is. It is whispered that election is a licentious doctrine. That is, that uh, people could use it, you know, well, I'm going to be saved, I'm elect, I'm secure, I can live how I like, I can have a great time. It is whispered that election is a licentious doctrine. Say it out loud, and I'll answer you. <laughs> the men who have believed this doctrine have been the wide world over the most zealous, most earnest, most holy men. Never were men more heavenly-minded than the Puritans. When a man believes that he's chosen to be a king, 
Therefore, would it be a legitimate inference to draw from it? I'm chosen to be a king. Therefore, I'll be a beggar. I'm chosen to sit upon a throne. Therefore, I'll wear rags. No. The man, knowing that a peculiar dignity has been put upon him by God, feels working in his bosom a desire to live up to his dignity. God has loved me more than others, says he. Then I will love him more than others. He's put me above the rest of mankind by his sovereign grace. Let me live above them. Let me be more holy. Let me be more eminent in grace than any of them. I heard a man say once, Sir, if I believed that doctrine, I should live in sin. My reply to him was this, I dare say you would. (laughs) (laughs) To a man that is renewed by grace, says Spurgeon, uh, further, there is no doctrine that could make him love sin. Here is a lion roaring for its prey. I will change it into a lamb. And I defy you to make that lamb by any doctrine go and redden its lips with blood. It cannot do it. Its nature is changed. Good old Spurgeon. He said it again. (laughs) Denial then is inconsistent with the doctrine of election. Denial of this doctrine is inconsistent even with the doctrine of justification. Because justification is not merely forgiveness, but a new status by imputation and a new standing with God. As Paul says in in Romans uh, chapter 5 and and verse 9, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? We have a new standing. We are still adopted children. However, we fail him. Adoption, which follows from justification and is part of, of our inheritance, um, helps us greatly here. Adoption. I haven't time to go into this in any detail, but it's a glorious, <coughs> glorious doctrine. You know, the ancient world, I sometimes think, had a better doctrine of parenthood than people do today. Mm, yeah, yeah. You see... <laughs> Ultimately, parenthood is a moral relationship more than a biological one. That is very important, I think. The old um, peoples, including the the Romans, had a system of adoption that reflected this. If a man had no heirs, he adopted a child, or he adopted someone later in, in life, often a man. But the moment that that adoption was sealed, that adopted son became in every way regarded as the son of his father the heir to his estates entitled to the family name and without any prejudice on account of the way he became a son that is by a certificate of adoption and of course in scripture we have the same thing we are not naturally God's children as I told you he is not naturally God's everybody's father that's the heathen doctrine but it is by the adoption of grace that we become his children. We are not his sons in the way that Christ is his son, the eternal son by nature and by rights. But we have become sons by adoption so effectively that in our sonship we have a, a relationship with God that can never be doubted, never be denied, never be questioned, 
never be dissolved, unbreakable, and eternal. And we are still his adopted children, even when we <coughs> fail him. We are not just his adopted children when we are riding the high places. Sometimes we are his adopted prodigal children. And we have to be brought back through much pain to the place where we are living out our dignity. But we are still his children. We must remember that. Sin, even sin in our lives, cannot dissolve that bond. There used to be an old Victorian song, uh, Mother of Mine, you know it? If I were hanged from the highest hill, Mother of Mine, Mother of Mine. Barney knows it well, of course. He was young when it was written, but um, <laughs> the others of you <laughs> will, will perhaps have heard your grandmother speak about it. Uh, typical Victorian sentiment, actually. But the idea is real enough that whatever happens to him, even if society should reject him as an outcast, even though he himself should become the, a criminal, his mother would take his body down from the gibbet because the relationship is indissoluble. And we have to say that about our adoption as sons. We cannot get such a doctrine of adoption that every period of spiritual dryness or even backsliding um, obscures that relationship. For I know no way of coming out of backsliding that equals a way of knowing that God is your Father, that you should not be living like this. That's the greatest incitement to holiness in the world. And when the devil trips us over, it's the greatest incitement to recovery in the world. It's a far more powerful incitement to recovery than the, the moral blackmail which says, well, of course, you can't really believe that you're a child of God because you've slipped up, haven't you? And you've got to wait until you've reached a peak again before you can believe it. That's a blackmail, but it's not uh, an incitement uh, to the level of this. We have to know our security. And of course, if godless men... Uh, fear that that could be used to excuse sin in the life of the believer, then they don't know the believer. They don't know the hatred that we had for the sins that crucified our Lord. And we are determined to crucify the sins that crucified him. And the fact remains that we, in fact, cannot abuse it because we cannot and will not be as we were. Paul says in Romans 6, 5 and 6, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. It's unthinkable to be slaves to sin. It's unnatural to be slaves to sin. It's living so far beneath your privilege that you are in danger of cursing yourself and vehemently treading underfoot the temptations that grieve him and disgrace you. That is the believer's attitude to sin. Not an attitude of cowardice, of terror, of insecurity, but an attitude of indignation. Should I, a son of God, give in to this temptation? Should I, being what I am, should such a man as I flee? I think it was Nehemiah who said that, wasn't it? Should such a man as I flee? Now remember, resist the devil and he'll do the fleeing. He will flee from you. And while I'm talking about books from time to time, let me say that I consider one of the greatest books of our time and the greatest of all his books is Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on Romans chapter 6. I think it's called The New Man. 
And if you want a life-changing, revolutionary book, master that book. If you want to read one of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' books, read that one. If you never read another, and you'll want to read a lot after that, and work at it, it is a life-changing book. It is a revolutionizing book. It's called The New Man, Romans chapter 6, published by the Banner of Truth, by D.M. Lloyd-Jones. And there you learn the difference between um, the old man and the old nature. They're not the same thing. The old man has been crucified with Christ. The old nature remains to plague you. Um, the old self that he's talking about is a holistic entity. It is the, the heart of you and the whole of you as you were, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, sons of disobedience. Now that has been done away with. You have been crucified with Christ. The moment the Holy Spirit came into you at the new birth, he united the sinner on earth with the Savior in heaven. And there was a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old life was gone. The old self was gone. The old self-identification with it went. Now there is a new man. There is a new life. But there's not only a new life in terms of inspiration. There is a new man in terms of identification, self-identification, self-awareness. Who am I? Not the old man with a bit of new life. Not the old man with a new inspiration. But a new man in Christ Jesus. And who is that new man? An adopted child of God. An heir of heaven. A son of my father. The old man being crucified. He will never again claim identity. It isn't a case of the old man being dead but won't lie down. The old man has been effectively dealt with the moment that the, the atonement of Christ and the resurrection of Christ were applied to you and became operative upon you and in you. The old man being crucified, he will never again claim identity. It isn't a case of the old man being dead but won't lie down. The old man has been effectively dealt with the moment that the, the atonement of Christ and the resurrection of Christ were applied to you and became operative upon you and in you. What remains is, a, is relics of the old nature. What remains is old habits that die hard, even old mindsets that die hard. There is still a struggle and a wrestle in that respect. But you must understand who you are. You are not the person you were. And you're not two people either. You are the new man in Christ Jesus, as the title of the book calls it. So you, you get to work on that, and I promise you, you'll, you'll bless the day you did. So denial is inconsistent with the doctrines of justification and adoption. And denial of this doctrine is inconsistent too with our Lord's priestly intercession. It's inconsistent with our Lord's priestly intercession. The Lord is a praying Lord and he has always granted his desire in prayer why is he always granted his desire in prayer not because he believes for blessing as the phrase is not because he insists on having his way but because he always prays in accordance with the will of the Father he knows the heart of God and their hearts beat as one heart and whatever he asks the Father gives him because it's in accordance with the Father's will. For his will and the Father's will are one. And so we read that when he raised Lazarus from the grave and prayed out loud, 
he looks up and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. I know that you always hear me. And that truth rings through his priestly intercession now, for it's the message of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, that he always lives as the praying Christ, the praying Lord, the interceding mediator, living for his people in heaven as he died for his people on earth. He has not left behind that concern with us, that orientation around us. He lives for us in heaven, as sure as he ever lived for us on earth. So we read, because Jesus lives forever, Hebrews 7.24, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, verse 25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Now when he says he's able to save to the uttermost, as the famous old version puts it, it isn't from the guttermost to the uttermost, as people like to say. By to the uttermost, he means to the end time, and not merely from depths to heights. It's the idea that he can keep on saving to the nth degree and to the uttermost point in eternity. So he says he is able to save completely. Um, as the NIV puts it, trying to get the best of both worlds, probably quite rightly too, able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, the great saving work of atonement is finished. That isn't continued. That isn't continuous. That isn't extended into time. It is complete once for all, as Hebrews repeatedly reminds us. We must always remember that. Um, once for all. But the intercession which takes place on the basis of the atonement, that is continued throughout time. And that is the, the strength of the Holy Spirit's application of, of the atonement and what Christ has bought for us. So we have a praying Christ. Do you know, if I can enlighten this with a little illustration, I warrant that you'll want to use this in your, in, in, in your preaching because uh, you'll probably think it's as delightful as I. There was, a, there was a, a Victorian painter who painted an ingenious painting. He must have had the mind of a, of a devout Christian and, uh, to have done it. He painted a picture of um, the storm on the lake of Galilee. Now you know that Jesus uh, sent his disciples to the other side of the lake saying, I'm going to go up to the mountain and pray. And they rowed across, but there was one of these sudden squalls which come tearing down, the, uh, down onto the Sea of Galilee. And uh, they were laboring with their oars in the midst of this terrifying storm which threatened to capsize them and Jesus came walking over the water. But the artist didn't um, portray Jesus walking over the water. He took it a stage back. And in the picture, you see the storm on the lake and Christ in the mountain praying. You see the connection? The disciples laboring, the Savior praying. The disciples in the storm, the Savior in the place of intercession. And the connection is obvious, isn't it? Because that's the parable of what he's doing now. We're on the lake and in the storm very often. 
but we have Christ in the mount of God at the right hand of the Father who ever lives to intercede for us and that to me has always been a beautiful illustration of this truth and therefore because he always lives to pray for us he shall never lose us for God John 17 20 and 24 and we've dealt with John 17 briefly before now let me come to uh, let me come lastly to some uh, objections and questions that are bound to arise whenever we teach this doctrine people immediately of course rush to their own experience and they say but I've known plenty of people who've made decisions for Christ and gone away from it or I've known people who've not only made decisions for Christ but they've um, they've really stood up to certain tests and they have, have appeared to have had a quite deep work and a genuine faith and they've even suffered the contradiction of sinners as their master did and yet now they know it at all well what do we do in the face of this well there is one rule we should keep you don't abandon what you know because of what you don't know you don't abandon what you know because of what you don't know what do you know you know Romans 8 29 following that whom he predestined them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified you know this as a doctrine of scripture and you don't abandon that on pragmatic grounds very often we are hard pressed to explain <coughs> this chaotic world where there is sometimes chaos in the church and the, the, the appearance of it in the lives of Christians too and if we start to construct a theology on what we observe in this sin conditioned world we'll never get anywhere there are many possibilities of course there's 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 where he says this is his explanation he doesn't give up the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints but in 1 John 2 19 faced with the same facts they knew all these things they had people who were baptized and fell away happened all the time always has happened to all preachers happened to Whitfield as well as Billy Graham to Calvinist Arminian uh, evangelists as well as Arminian evangelists to those that use the best methods and you know, those that use not so good methods to people in revival as well as to people out of revival and it happened in apostolic days and he says in 1 John 2.19 they went out from us but they did not really belong to us for if they had belonged to us they would have remained with us but their going out showed their going showed that none of them belonged to us now that is a, a, a plain statement and that is always one we must keep in mind you cannot read the heart you can only read the lips only God knows when the work is deep and genuine only God knows the secrets of people's minds but of course we can say more we can say there is always the possibility of return because the fact of backsliding is clear in scripture as we'll see and sometimes backsliding can be foul sometimes it can be for long periods some people only believe that backsliding can be in little things for short periods but that isn't true that isn't true to the realities of life as well as the appearances of life we have a world of sad variety and, and it should not really sad, sad to say it should not take us by surprise 
when we meet these cases where people have come to God in youth and have had to come as penitents in age because they have sold out God's blessing for their mess of pottage but you may say and we'll come back to that in a minute what of the many warning passages this is another objection well no one first of all should underestimate the wonder of our survival it is a wonder that any of us continues as Christians everything is against us as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 11 we need to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that we may have great endurance and patience we need these things just to survive and there are warning passages but those warning passages you know are part of the equipment part of the equipment for survival let me give an illustration and I'll give you some of the the passages but if you say to a child if you put your finger in the fire you'll get burned now there's no suggestion that the child is going to be allowed to do it or will do it and indeed the warning is the way of guaranteeing that it won't do it and so there are warning passages in the scriptures which are there as part of the equipment whereby the saints do steer clear of apostasy and do reject every approach of the enemy that they should reject their saviour those warning passages are clear in scripture um, they also um, they also serve to expose of course false Christians in scripture in Hebrews uh, especially Hebrews is a, an epistle full of warnings because they are writing to Christian Jews who are being tempted to go back into the old faith with its outward splendors which made the new way seem so meager and so again and again you have warning passages because of the threat of apostasy and he says in chapter 2 we must pay more careful attention therefore to what we've heard so that we do not drift away for if the message spoken by angels was binding he's referring to Sinai the giving of the law through the mediation of angels and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation he's not saying that they will he's saying if you could you would not escape and it is the, the, the fact and the threat in the fact that is part of the equipment for uh, avoiding it <coughs> however the God who ordains that we shall be saved at the end also ordains that we shall be kept to the end that's why Peter in his first epistle and verse 5 talks about us through faith being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation ready to be revealed now I'll come back to other passages in a moment someone might say well wait a minute what of Judas now there's a man who confessed Christ who was discipled by Christ who took part in missions for Christ who clearly had powers of the Holy Spirit because they went out casting out demons and healing the sick and they came back rejoicing and we've no real reason to think that Judas never exercised a spiritual gift what are we going to say about Judas well the bottom line about Jesus about Judas is that Jesus knew from the beginning have I not chosen you twelve and one of you has a demon he knew he was not a child of God he knew when he chose him among the twelve 
that he was possessed and that he would be a tool of Satan. But because the Father wanted it, he had prayed the night before, he chose those twelve. He chose Judas. John reminds us that Judas was a liar and that uh, a thief from the beginning, that he had the bag. The fact of Judas being there is one thing. The fact of him being an elect child of God is another. He was not. Jesus himself in John 17 says that he was the son of perdition. And we must remember, therefore, that, uh, that Judas maintained his character, the character of a sinner and a reprobate throughout his ministry with Jesus. What of Hebrews 6, 4-6, someone might say? Now, Hebrews 6, 4-6, I'm just going to deal briefly with this, um, is it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public distress. Now there are two explanations to that type of warning passage. You've got it again in chapter 11. Spurgeon's explanation related to what I said earlier, that part of the equipment of our survival is these warning passages. They are not given to express a theological possibility, but they are given to make good a theological guarantee that the believer will never be lost. They are warning passages that are, in one sense, hypothetical, says Spurgeon. He says it is impossible for those, and it really is impossible, says Spurgeon, but the reason it's impossible is because it's written and warned it is impossible for those who have been once enlightened um, to be brought back if they fall away to repentance. The other explanation of Hebrews 6, 4-6 is the explanation of Dr. John Owen, of course, the great Puritan and many other writers who says that these people weren't truly regenerate. That like Judas, they had gifts in the, of the Holy Spirit but yet were not regenerate people. He says it is possible for those to taste the heavenly gift, um, to share in the Holy Spirit, to taste the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, actually to participate in the powers of the coming age. And this has to be faced. It may seem unlikely to you, but in a time of revival, it is a fact. The Holy Spirit comes down on a whole community and people are affected. Even the reprobate are affected. They get caught up in the general work. And you must always remember that common grace can reach heights that sometimes appear to exceed the level of other people who have saving grace. That can sometimes happen. So, John Owen and, and, and John Brown and many others say that these were not truly uh, regenerate people. Well, I don't know which of those two explanations you find the most convi convincing or if you want to suspend judgment on this matter. There are other explanations that are sometimes even less acceptable, actually. But remember what I said earlier. You don't abandon what you know because of what you don't know. And that's very important with passages like this. You may say, well, what about 1 Timothy? Have a look at 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan 
to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, there you are, somebody says. There's the statement. You can make shipwreck of your faith. Yes, but wait a minute. Does shipwreck of faith mean the same to Paul as it does in the mind of many Arminians who object to this whole doctrine? They think it means you lose your salvation utterly. Is Paul saying that? No. He's saying they've made shipwreck of their profession of faith. They have injured the reputation of Christ. They have destroyed their credibility. And I've handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, he wouldn't say that if he was talking about a reprobate. He's saying that because he's talking to elect people that have fallen into error. Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he's saying they've got to be taught not to blaspheme. And I think that this is his way of saying they are to be excommunicated from the local church. They are to be thrust out into the world. And he describes it as a handing over to Satan because at a profound level in the heavenly places they are then exposed in a way they weren't exposed when they were walking in obedience. They become playthings of the devil. He has permission to do things in their lives that normally he wouldn't have permission to do in the life of the elect after their salvation. He cannot finally destroy their souls, but he will give them a hard time. He will lead them into greater sin and disgrace, maybe, or he will be given permission to punish them in the body. As Paul says to some Corinthians, some of you are weak and some of you have died already. And he even come to death. In order, he says, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. And in order that others might learn by their example not to blaspheme. There is a corrective element here that wouldn't make sense with the reprobate. And uh, others say, well, what about 2 Timothy 2, 17 to 19? Look at 2 Timothy 2, 17 to 19. He's again warning people to avoid the godless chatter of people who are in doctrinal error. And he says their teaching will spread like gangrene. Isn't it awful how error spreads? Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows who are his now, that in fact proves my point, doesn't it? Because he's saying that ultimately damnable error can never damn the soul of God's elect because he knows who are his. He will preserve them. Elsewhere we read of such people they will deceive the very elect if it were possible. But thank God it is said not to be possible by implication. It proves my point. Well, how can I conclude... Um, with the uses of this doctrine because doctrine is to be used doctrine is never just there to be academic to be notional to be mathematical this doctrine surely is crucial for assurance crucial for assurance I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against the day crucial for assurance yes I to the end shall endure a verse I quoted earlier. Crucial for assurance. He will keep me till the river rolls its water at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over. Whether I'm high in faith or low in faith. And I've dealt with beautiful Christians that have been both. You can't tell someone's state by the way they die. 
I've seen mature people die in fear, and I've seen immature people who may be saved by the skin of their teeth die in a cocky confidence. You can't tell by the way someone dies. <laughs> Very often a person's physical condition determines actually how they are feeling and therefore how they are thinking as they die. When a man comes to die, it's all his work to die. <laughs> I think John Wesley sort of uh, warned about that with people who thought that they could repent on their deathbeds. And it is true that dying is hard work. And it is true. But it is entirely true. We don't all go with glorious deathbed sayings on our lips. Wonderful when we do. But we can have this assurance. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over, made by grace for glory meet. That'll be it. We shall know as we are known. We shall see him and shall be like him. We shall leave all sin behind. We shall be fitted for heaven, made by grace for glory meet. Crucial for assurance, vital for thanksgiving and praise, and mighty for sanctification. Mighty for sanctification. I wanted to quote some... Um, I wanted to quote, and I just lost the... Uh, uh, the reference here I wanted to quote uh, C.H. Spurgeon uh, as a, a last quotation dear me shall we take a half an hour off while I look through the one book that I brought because I didn't have time to write it out ah oh, here it is here it is I'm not going to miss this he's been with us through all these lectures <laughs> I don't see why I shouldn't let him have the last word not Peter Lewis this is how how he, he ends for us on, on, the, on this note uh, he said is not this worth having grasp at it poor soul thou mayest have it if thou dost but believe in Jesus Christ or in other words trust thy soul with him deposit thine eternal destiny in this divine bank then thou canst say I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. The Lord bless you for Christ's sake. Amen. But there is one word higher than Mr. Spurgeon's word, one encouragement which stands more firm than any <laughs> that any preacher can give us. It's the doxology and the benediction in one which you find at the end of Jude. Jude 24 and 25 to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.